Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. Sustainable Stories is here to bring you the stories behind sustainability in our communities. From big to small, practical to theoretical, we're exploring the people and projects that are working to make our world a more sustainable, equitable, and healthy place to live. Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. I'm your host for today's episode. My name is Jenna Inglot, and I'm coming to you today from Treaty 6 territory, uh, north and west of Saskatoon, about an hour near the community of Blaine Lake. And I have with me today a, a fantastic guest and a really, really great friend of mine, Beth Thiessen. And Beth and I met during, um, well, actually, we're from different programs. I almost did that wrong there. But Beth and I met during our master's degrees at the University of Saskatchewan. Um, And I'll let Beth talk more about her program. But um, we met, I like, we met in a sustainability class, I'm fairly sure. And um, Beth has since moved to BC, where she now works in environmental policy. So welcome, Beth. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Um, so I always start this podcast, I'll, I'll let you kind of introduce yourself and where you are and all that good stuff. But yeah, just start off by telling us a bit about yourself and who you are and what you do and all that good stuff. Yeah, so um, my name is Beth Deason, Um and I live in, uh, live, work and play in um, unceded Coast Salish territory uh, in British Columbia. Um, and I work in uh, public policy in the environmental sector right now. Um, and as Jenna said, we met in a sustainability in theory and practice course, and we bonded over um, uh, yoga, I think. And then also like <laughs> that class was just like, really, um, I think, entering into grad school and just like being around other people who are like passionate about the environment and passionate about sustainability was just like very energizing um, and uh, a great place to meet like you know, hopefully lifelong friends. So agreed. Agreed. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, how long have you been living and working in British Columbia? So, oh yeah. So I guess I should have said, um, I was, uh, born in Treaty 6 territory, uh, did both of my degrees at the University of Saskatchewan and I moved to British Columbia a year and a half ago. Um, so this is now currently my my second West Coast winter, um, and I really love it. I it's it's the winter yeah, or the West Coast. I, I miss <laughs> the West Coast. I miss I do miss Saskatchewan. Like we we did actually get um, our first like quote unquote snow of the season, and uh, it's just not the same as like as a prairie winter. And the like the the darkness, the raininess, the cloudiness. Um, definitely doesn't help with like winter blues. Like I miss like a bluebird day in the middle of December in Saskatchewan. Like it's just so nice. Um, but I, I do really, I do really enjoy being out here too. So yeah, it's beautiful. I, as, as you know, best, but I did my undergraduate degree at, at UBC Okanagan campus in Kelowna and, uh, similarly loved it. Um, beautiful place to live and play, uh, and be and learn. Um, but yeah, my first winter there, I just couldn't believe, uh, 
yeah, I didn't believe that, you know, uh, any sort of seasonal depression or, you know, I didn't think that was a, a thing that, that happened to me or that could happen to me. And I remember my first winter there being mm-hmm. just, wow, that it was so cloudy all the time. I was going to bed at just a ridiculously early hour and just felt tired all the time. And yeah. So anyways, I hear you. Awesome. Um, well, yeah. I want to talk about, well, I want to talk about lots of things with you, um, Beth, excited to hear environmental impact assessment. Um, but I think when I think about this podcast, we, we've spoken with so many great folks and, um, you know, this term sustainability, typically overused, um, you know, not really well understood or, or defined. And so I I sort of see this next question as kind of an opportunity for the collective that have been a part of our podcast so far um, to sort of have this working definition of what sustainability means. Um, So I'm curious, uh, you know, if you can, you know, what sustainability means to you and, and how you, you work to integrate a sustainability lens into your work and into your life. So yeah, this question was very interesting to me. And of course, like having, I guess, a year and a half of policy experience under my belt, um, I, I've, I approach this very much like an analyst would. Um, that is just, that's me. Um, <laughs> and so I started thinking of like sustainability in like an academic sense, I guess. Um, and uh, one thing that I, that I found very um uh, that, that I really like took home from that course that we met in that sustainability class um, was sort of a really simple definition of sustainability is, um, you know, environmental, social and economic sustainability. Like those are the three pillars. Um, but one thing I, I, I found very valuable from that course was um, the natural step framework for, for sustainability, which sort of addresses those three pillars, but adds on, I think, a fourth one that's like very important. So um, the basic kind of um, the components of a sustainable system requires sort of four things that we need to eliminate. So we need to um, uh, decrease um, the rate of extraction from the Earth's crust. Uh, So, you know, reduce fossil fuel um, extraction, heavy metals. Um, that kind of thing. We need to decrease the concentrations of substances that are produced by society. So like, you know, think about waste streams and and moving towards a circular economy and those those types of things. Um, And then we also need to eliminate the systematic physical degradation of nature and natural processes. So thinking about over harvesting or um, habitat destruction or soil degradation. Um, and this last one, I think like those, those three things are pretty, um, they're pretty obvious, I guess, in a, in a sort of definition of, of sustainability, like, you know, use what we have, reduce harmful behavior that affects, um, natural systems and, and also these, these substances that like this waste that can't go anywhere. Um, but then the, the last condition is that, um, and I think this is something that's maybe sometimes left out or has been left out of the environmental movement for for a long time is thinking about the conditions that allow people to meet their basic human needs um and that's like that for me i guess is how um how i approach sustainability um and i i come to this kind of work um i have a background in um international development studies so 
um, I didn't start, I did a master's in, in geography and I didn't start this journey from, um, from a, a technical background, I guess. Um, and that's kind of something I think that I maybe struggled with when I first started grad school is like, oh, like, what, what do I have to offer in these programs? Or I'm just a social scientist. Don't ask me any technical questions, you know? Um, and uh, I think it's really like that putting like the human, the human lens into um, these like big, big issues, but that it like, like climate change fundamentally impacts the ability of people to meet their basic human needs. Right. And mm-hmm. I think for so long, so many of these, like I'm talking like very, very broadly, but like um, it's these sort of decisions about these policy decisions um, or technical solutions are maybe like devoid of community values or um, like the people that are actually most affected by whatever the problem is right so like you can't talk about like um industrial agriculture or like trying to promote uh local food systems without talking about like wealth inequality and without talking about food deserts um and gentrification like there i guess there has to be like that that human um that human element to sort of thinking about how we're going to address some of these like major um, major issues, I guess, that are, that are making this earth so unsustainable or that we're making this earth so unsustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think something you, you touched on and we talked about a little bit earlier was this, this concept of, of intersectionality in the environmental movement and that, you know, it's, it's getting there for sure. Um, but just like everything else in in the world, I think the environmental movement, the sustainability movement, has historically functioned, um, you know, pretty pretty insular, like pretty silo style, um, without really thinking about the way that it interacts with, um, you know, race and place and. Um, yeah, there's, there's, there's so much to unpack, mm-hmm. I think, with, with the way that the environmental movement has, um, and I mean, you, you've spent some time in the Arctic, as have I, uh, and I think there's so many examples of things that, that we have sort of looked at, Inuit communities, for example, um, and, you know, different environmental movements have challenged the way that they live their life and, and their lifestyle uh, to their to the detriment of of those mm. people in those communities. Um, and it's only now that there's been sort of, I would say, very slight but some reconciliation around, um, you know, things like opposing seal hunting, which is which is, you know, a primary food source for most of those communities. So, anyways, I, I think it's 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 getting there and it's happening, but I think this, this concept of intersectionality and there's, there's no way we can look at one issue without seeing the people or the communities or um, those aspects within it. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious, Beth, like, I know your research work, um, is it doing a bit of a better job at that intersectional approach? Is it still very much, um, 
you know, on the more technical side. Um, I'm curious, sort of a, a bit, if you could share a bit about your research and what your sort of um, focus was. And then, yeah, if you have any thoughts about the process as it is and, and how things are and maybe where they could go in the future. Yeah, so um, so my, my master's work um, was looking at um, the environmental assessment process in Nunavut, um, specifically around um, Arctic shipping. And so I came to sort of, yeah, impact assessment as I guess a new, um, actually wanted to do a master's in something else that was um, still, uh, I guess, um, in, in the environmental sector, um, but that didn't work out. So I, I, um, I got uh, referred to an opening in the geography department and I was like, well, that sounds good. Like met my supervisor, uh, seemed like a good fit and the project sounded interesting, but I didn't know a whole uh, heck of a lot about environmental assessment. And, and it is um, something that I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm an EA nerd now for sure. Um, I think like, I think I'm brought, I think I'm just like interested in how we make decisions and that we can make better decisions. And like, I guess there's, I see a very large gap. Um, and, and I mean, not just in environmental policy in terms of like what like we know how to do better, but practice is slow to change. Mm -hmm. um, and there's good examples across the country. And then there's also like very bad, you know, like even, even current examples where you're like, oh, that's, that is not good decision-making. Um, so I think that there is, yeah, there's a wealth of, of um, best practices or, um, or, um what's the right word um just I mean yeah like I think I think we have a lot of the blueprint blueprints in in how to do better better but um I guess actually implementing on the ground I, I think there's a lot of learning that that needs to happen um and yeah so so my my, my research focused on sort of how the environmental assessment process can um, be a tool to broker knowledge between um, different people or different groups that have different knowledge bases. Um, and so Nunavut is actually a really interesting example of a jurisdiction that's um, doing some really, really innovative work. Um, and, and, and part of the um, part of the challenge, I guess, or, or one of the enabling conditions of why they're successful in um, using Inuit knowledge alongside um, Western science in a way that isn't, um, in a way that isn't um, trying to mash the two up or like one, they have to contradict each other or like it's very much seen as a complementary, um, as a comp, as complementary knowledge because um, there are so many gaps in what science can tell us about the um, the Arctic Ocean, for example, or just even navigation routes in terms of mapping are really, um, there's just huge gaps up there. And so um, sometimes Inuit knowledge is the only knowledge to rely on in an impact assessment. And um, the reason why I guess they, like they're, they're enabled to have this process that, 
um, that um, involved communities uh, throughout the entire process is because of land claims. And of course, um, that's something that is, um, you know, like in, in Saskatchewan, there's, there's no sort of co-managed environmental assessment process to manage um, resource development in, in the north or even, I guess, in the south of the province, right? So mm-hmm. there's a stark contrast, too, where there are jurisdictions that have those mechanisms um, and where there is sort of like land use planning um, and uh, the, the gap, I guess, um, between those. Uh, those types of practices is just it's it's vast, um, and like there there are like I guess um, there have been positive changes like federally there's um, now the consideration of um, indigenous knowledge is a is a is explicitly acknowledged in the new impact assessment act, um, mm-hmm. and there are considerations around gender based analysis um, and and um, considering the effects of projects um, on groups um, using using GBA plus. Um, but I think, yeah, like the proof is still uh, proof is still in the pudding, I guess, in terms of right. actually getting through an EA and and how well that's actually implemented versus um, like practice has largely been sort of disaggregating community uh, community data by sex, right? Like that doesn't really tell us anything about um, about different types of women and different types of men or different types of people that might be affected by projects and what are their different values or needs or lived experiences and how they experience development differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess like practice to date hasn't been, it, it has been that, um, that disaggregated um, sort of just it's 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 a desktop study, not necessarily um, you know talking talking to people about how they might experience resource development differently. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's you know just as you were talking, I was reflecting on my own experience in community energy planning and community renewables in general. Um, and, and really the land use process or planning processes that, again, struggle with the same thing where the, the planning process itself or the, the thinking behind it, the processes behind it are, you know, do a really good job of, of integrating Indigenous knowledge and traditional ecological knowledge and community knowledge and community feedback, um, but the implementation is harder. Um, and the implementation, you know, just straight being able to implement those things, um, that come out of those plans or feasibility studies is a challenge. And then implementing them in the way that the study (laughs) determined would be best is even harder. Um, and so I think that, yeah, I think it gets bogged down in, in the implementation phases and, um, especially in environmental assessment, there's this whole, well, in everything, but there's this whole uh, machine that doesn't operate with those things in mind. So it's really hard to expect, um, you know, expect people to implement in a particular way when the system is not designed to facilitate for them to be able to implement in that way. So 
uh, yeah, it's, it's challenging. So I'm, yeah. I think it's hard (laughs) to like in, um, particularly in the BC context where there has been like policy change, it's, um, like using, using Nunavut as an example too. It's like, um, they, they didn't, um, their, their process took a lot, a long time to sort of mature, um, and build sort of the capacity to be able to, to deliver on, on the, the mandate of what, um, impacted, like how the land claims set out, sets out, um, impact assessment. Um, and I think in BC too, I guess it's like maybe, there's a need for like a little bit of understanding too, that it's like, it will take time for people to learn. Right. So there, um, there's been policy changes to where um, there's um, uh, effects need to be considered in terms of uh, disproportionate effects on distinct human populations. And so um, that's in, that's in the new BC environmental assessment act, but again, sort of, um, how that's applied in practice and and there is a lot of sort of like learning by doing I guess right like you can't we can't necessarily expect all of the consultants from all of the different um you know like yeah the the amount of work that goes into environmental assessment is monumental right involving technical experts from from across government from industry like it it, it is it's it's a learning process I guess and so um it, it we're, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit hopeful, um, that, that now that we sort of have, I guess, things that are, that are legislated that are, um, trying to incorporate a lot of those best practices that have existed in the academic world for a long time, um, and trying to put them into practice. But I guess, yeah, recognizing that it's like, there will be, um, there's a lot of learning to do, right. Um, it won't, it won't happen overnight. Um, and uh, I guess that's yeah one one thing that I've been working on papers again for my uh, almost almost two years out now, but still working on publications. <laughs> um, but yeah, like it, it, I guess in in Nunavut, if it's a maybe a, a good example for for what um, for what implementation could look like, like it there there is a point I guess where you sort of define like what the what the social license is to, 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 to move a project forward or um, what is sort of best practice for dealing with certain communities. And so over time, I guess it was the, the bar in Nunavut is so high. And so it, like they, there's learning across projects to where the next proponent knows the expectations, right? Because mm-hmm. um, they've either been through the process on on a different project, or um, or have you know looked at looked at other um, other projects that have that have gone through the process, and there is learning there too, right? Like right. in terms yeah. of what that what that new bar is, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting, and I think. You know, there's lots to be learned across interprovincial and interterritorial borders as well. I think the way things operate in different regions, um, you know, we all can kind of learn from. I remember recently working with some communities in northern northern Alberta on some renewable energy projects and community energy planning. And one of the things that they had talked about was that, you know, the 
the intensity of oil and gas development in their region um, had been, or they had described it as truly a, a benefit in terms of them getting really organized around um, being mm-hmm. a participant in those processes, uh, you know, where they found other communities or, or friends of theirs from other communities or, you know, they sort of described as being less, less organized when things happened because they weren't sort of always having to interact with, with extractive industry in that way. And so, um, you know, they felt like they were maybe more prepared, but as he was describing that, I, I was thinking about how, you know, unfair that is in a sense that, um, you know, if a one-off project happens to a particular community, likely they, they may be taken advantage of in a way that a community that's really used to it uh, wouldn't have that happen. So anyways, I think there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of making sure that across communities, everything sort of, you know, there's a, a, there's an opportunity for them to be involved in the process, regardless of whether they've been actively involved in it in the past. So yeah don't know what the solution is there but (laughs) no but and I think like that has an interesting point too like I I think about this just like a lot in terms of like how I practice sustainability in my in my own life too but like we're also at such a different time right like the level of disturbance on the landscape has like never been higher right like just it's the disruption (laughs) destruction is just so um so severe to so many different systems and on so many different landscapes that I think like I think practice has a lot needs to catch up like a lot we can't do um like I'm by no means a cumulative effects expert right but like um thinking about like when I guess maybe maybe when sort of like those those practices um started like when government started to implement um cumulative effects framework you weren't necessarily like dealing with the same level of cumulative effects right like hundreds of years of in, or hundred of year hundred years of industrial development at this point or like thinking about like the concentration of like shipping um living in living in Vancouver right like it's it's um we have different problems right and like doing a caribou assessment assessing impacts to caribou populations like you know 10 years ago even was vastly different in terms of like where populations are at now so it's like Mm -hmm. we have like some really really hard um yeah it's I mean and that that's like broader than EA that's like that's how we're gonna like save save the planet right but it's like it is so it's it's different and like yeah we're in late stage capitalism like it's it's I don't know. I think just this expectation, I guess, that like development can continue as it has for, you know, the last like 20, 30 years is just like untenable. It just, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, if I, if, yeah. Yeah. We can't simultaneously achieve these sustainability goals or environmental goals and also continue down this extreme extractive path right and that's gonna 
yeah, require some really big changes and require some demands from people like us to, to, yeah, make sure those that have the power are held accountable to make those changes as well. Cause I mean, a lot of, a lot of this podcast so far, we've focused a lot on, you know, individuals and what individuals can do. And I think, you know, that, that at home and grassroots action is so important and so empowering. Um, but not without continuing to put pressure where the power exists because um, Mm -hmm. everyone in the world could be the most perfect zero waste, zero emissions, zero this um, perfect person. And there would still be a major, major climate and environmental crisis that we're living in right so um just because of industries and so and and we're all part of that of course but yeah we kind of there's been this shift towards this individual need to change um and yeah it's it's sort of shifted shifted people's perspective and put a lot of stress and anxiousness on individuals um which is not necessarily helpful and nor is it where the biggest change is needed so yeah um I wanted to just jump back, Beth, you, when you were doing your intro, you were talking about your undergraduate degree and your sort of how you start your path started, um, you know, in international development studies. I'm curious about, um, and, and one of the questions that we like to ask or like to hear a bit about, but, you know, so you were working in, um, international studies and so I'm curious um I'm curious like when you think about your life or your your story um you know where did this this interest in environment and sustainability and and those types of things can you sort of yeah could you pinpoint sort of when that interest happened or what that was like and then I'm yeah even just talk about that experience and sort of um yeah, what, what your kind of story is and, and how you ended up in this this work. Yeah, so I did, I, I guess I, I was always kind of interested in, in politics. Um, like my, my, my dad was always, um, we had a lot of political discussions around the, the table from sort of like a very young age. Um, and so there's always something that I was, I was interested in, not in like pursuing a career in politics, but I'm just interested in like what goes on in the world. Um, and so I did an international studies degree, uh, for my undergrad. And, um, I think it was, it was maybe, and I guess like my, maybe my fourth, like third or fourth year, um, of studying where I sort of started to get interested in um, all of the development issues that um, that Canada has, right? Like we live in a like quote unquote first world country, but, um, and I, I, I checked the stat to make sure I was right, but I mean like almost 60 communities in indigenous communities in Canada still don't have access to clean drinking water. Like that's a development issue, right? That um, that is very alarming. Like if you care about people um, and you care about other, you know, um, yeah, like I, I just, that just doesn't sit, that just doesn't sit right. Um, and so 
I, yeah, I, I started getting interested in, in the development issues that um, Canada faces and there's no reason we have all the wealth that we have that we're, we're not doing anything about it. Um, and so, yeah, that, that led me to, I think it led me to like a, an environmental geography class that um, I met like a, a professor who was like really, really supportive and, and um encouraging I guess and I just sort of slowly kind of shifted into um yeah like th- I guess thinking about how we how we make decisions um was was sort of a broad focus in in international studies and and it gave me um a background in like critical theories and in um post-colonial theories Um, but one of the, I think one of the things that I found frustrating about that program at the time, um, was that it was so good at like breaking everything down. Um, and like, um, it got to a point though, I guess, where there was no sort of like construction back up, right? Like you could just like Mm -hmm. pick apart, um, a problem about why, like how colonialism plays and racism and, um, and uh but there was no sort of like rebuilding i guess and so i kind of became interested in like okay so we um we know um if we know what people are experiencing and how policy is oppressing them like can they be part of the solution to can they be part of the solution right like that Mm -hmm. that, that's really it is like making decisions that are based on like, I mean, evidence, evidence-based policy making is like a, a thing that's thrown around a lot, but it's that evidence isn't like in a, in a technical or like, you know, positivist way. Like it can be that evidence can be like people's lived experiences, right. And their mm-hmm. values. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I just like slowly slipped, drifted to, um, to geography. Um, and like I said, I, I, I'd actually wanted to do a different um, master's actually in, in um, the School of Environment and Sustainability, but um, it just didn't work out with funding as it, as it happened. And yeah, I fell into, fell into environmental assessment. And I, I really, I think even if um, like I, right, right now, I mean, the practice like kind of across Canada is still very much um, based on, on project specific environmental assessment. But um, I, I see like a long-term, um, a long-term goal, or I guess place for for um, for where where I could fit in, in terms mm-hmm. of um, like more strategic level or land use planning too, right? Like, what do people? How do people want to build communities, and how can we make mm-hmm. that happen? Like, what what is acceptable? What's not acceptable? Um, and really rooting that in place and in and in values, I think is is huge. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, it's so interesting how stuck we feel. I think I think about this a lot with community energy planning or community planning in general, land use planning. Um, how easy it is to just oh well, we just build things this way or we just do things this way because that's the way we do them. Um, but we absolutely don't have to, you know, even thinking about the way that we design urban neighborhoods. um, Why can't we design things differently? Why can't we focus on 
um, green space and have more Southern facing roof space for solar. Like these are all things that are super achievable. Um, there's just kind of always this running excuse that, um, you know, well, it's easier or cheaper to just continue down the path that we're on or continue doing things the way that we're doing them. So it's going to take some big shifts. And I think, you know, some big things, uh, larger than individual actions, but I think we're all kind of a part of making sure we're pushing for those, those things to happen. So, um, and I want to, so I'm going to kind of shift gears again, Beth. Um, I kind of want to finish off just, uh, I guess on a little bit more of a personal note. Um, and just, if you don't mind sharing, you know, you, you work in environmental policy and, and you have this, you know, really strong interest clearly in sort of this intersectional environmental movement and things like that. Um, but what does, I guess, and we talked about this earlier that maybe we're, no one's the expert in this and that's cool, but, um, I'm curious about, you know, outside of your work life, what does sustainability look like for you in your day-to-day life? So a lot of, folks listening to this podcast and and a lot of folks that we've spoken to in the past, and I'm sure you've heard this before too, is that people feel like they can't be a part of it, or maybe feel like if they don't have a master's in environmental assessment, that they can't somehow be a part of this movement or making things better. Um, But yeah, I'm curious, like what sustainability looks like in your, you know, your, your day-to-day life. Hmm. Yeah, I think like, I think as with probably a lot of people this year, this year has been a year of a lot of unlearning. Um, And I think like, for at one point, I guess, and I'm not sure when this was in, in grad school, but I sort of like defined for myself, like, my professional, but also like my, my personal kind of like, drive, or like, like, I don't want to ever do anything that I'm like, I don't think I could do anything for a job that I'm like, not passionate about. Like I've done that. I've worked mm-hmm. in retail. I hated it. And um, I just like, I, I have this um, like these, these, I mean, yeah, like, like reconciliation and sustainability are things that it's like, I feel like if I'm not trying to actively contribute to those things, then like, what the heck am I doing with my life? Like. Um, <laughs> And I think like this, this year, especially like it's been, it's been hard, like um, really moving from like being an or, or calling yourself an ally to actually like allyship is a verb, right? Like, yes. and I think like, I don't know whether like, there's probably, I'm a thinker. Like I think about everything all of the time and sometimes it's exhausting, but and I know that not necessarily everyone has the capacity to do that, but like, I don't know, like it just, I, yeah, I don't know. For me, like it just comes from like a deep sense of like empathy for other humans, like, and mm-hmm. compassion. And it just like, it's hard to like be aware of what's happening, but like you can't look away. And like, it is our responsibility as settlers like we we have to witness it and we have to like do something about it right so like yes I think 
I think too, like you, you said before that it's like this shift of, you know, like individual action over, um, you know, like that, that's, what's going to change things, right? Like everyone having reasonable produce bags is, is not going yeah. to stop climate change. Right. Like, mm-hmm. and I think, I think I, that's something that I've struggled with. Like I've, I've, tr- I try to live low waste. I, I try to shop ethical when I can. Um, but those are also things that are like I can do because of my privilege. Um, yeah. but also I think like COVID has been hard that it's, um, like I've been throwing out more garbage than I was before COVID and that bothers me. But at the same time, like the, the stat that's like often quoted is like a hundred companies are responsible for like 70% of emissions. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think like that's maybe helpful to like give yourself grace sometimes too, that it's like, you can only do, you can only do so much, but like, mm-hmm. I think being connected to a community um, is like really critical, I guess. Like mm-hmm. just just caring about other people because that, I don't know, like it, I think it's like one of those, it's like once you, once, um, once you're aware of it, you can't not see it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at some point that compels you to action, right? Um, yeah so so I guess like start small but also like diversify who you like what your community looks like and who you engage with and where you get your information from Um, yeah yeah I think that I've been thinking of I mean we've all I hope we've all been thinking a lot this year but um, you know even during the times that we're in these you know, less physically social times, um, you know, there's ways to learn and ways to diversify our communities, whether it's through social media or through the books we read or, um, you know, all, all of those play an important role. And I think, you know, you, you, you kind of hit on this throughout everything that you've said here today, but this idea that, um, you know, if you don't know where to start, read some things, learn some things, um, you know, ask some questions about some things. And usually that's really, that's kind of where the, the seed of inspiration to be involved or be more active in this, uh, this space I think comes from is I think for many of us, you can sort of think about something you read or something you saw or, you know, something you experienced in person, whatever it may be, that all of a sudden you learned something that you didn't understand before, didn't know before. And, you know, you, it was, you had this sense of needing to, or like you spoke about this deep empathy for, for others. And you have this sense of needing to change the way that you do things or the way that you speak or the way anything. Um, but that is really focused from a place of, of you had to learn something and therefore now, you are kind of called to this action. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's important and whether it's books or social media or all of the things, but just making sure we're filling those spaces with, with um, yeah, with the folks and the voices that, that really do need to be amplified right now and, and into the future. So yeah. Awesome. 
there's um there's been a lot of like I think there's there's been a lot of like white people asking like well what can I do you know like all of the the um the like racial awakening that that has happened this year in terms of how deep-rooted white supremacy is and um like sustainability without reconciliation I don't think is sustainability and I think a lot of like what what I've at least seen this year is a lot of um black indigenous and people of color saying that like we need to stop asking like what we can do like that that information exists um it's it's accessible like and and on the reconciliation front like we have calls to action we from multiple inquiries or um you know commissions like we 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 have this we we know what we need to do we just need to give a shit to do it like yeah I think that's the like that's the true change and the power is it's like we know we know what we need to do we just like need enough people to like demand that change right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and be able to to be uncomfortable in the space that having others be live in the space that that um that so many of us do also requires us giving some things up and the first step in that is giving up this this comfortability and this you know always always getting to feel Mm -hmm. um comfy in social situations, in social media situations, in job interviews, whatever it might be. Um, yeah, it, it requires us actively giving some things up. Right. And I think that's, that, yeah, that, that speaks for all of these movements, but, um, yeah, I, and I really hear what you said. And I think, um, that's, I think maybe that's a, a good, good place to leave too, is, is that, you know, sustainability or, or moving towards a more sustainable world cannot happen without reconciliation. And it cannot happen without, um, you know, a a deep work towards um, the, the, the racial injustices that exist in our world. And yeah, it's, it's, it's exactly, exactly that term dismantling. Um, It can't happen. Like it, it won't. Yeah. The, the the sustainability can't happen if those things aren't simultaneously happening. So yeah, I think, mm-hmm. yeah, I think there's a lot of work ahead of us, but I also, you know, I also feel, and I'm really grateful that there's folks like you with, with um, you know, with your background and also with your passion um, working in government and working in policy. I think, um yeah, I think that's where we need to go in the future too, is, is making sure that, you know, and I don't, I don't definitely don't want to be prime minister, but, uh, you know, I think about, uh, you know, these people that we need to see in positions. Um, and yeah, that's, that's what we need as well, right. As people with, with this, this passion and, and understanding and compassion and empathy working in, in these roles. Thank you so much, Beth. I really appreciate it. I This was a great conversation. I feel like we could probably talk all day, every day about these subjects. Um, but thank you. I think, I think you know, some takeaways for me from this conversation are, are just to kind of continually work on this path of, of thinking about, you know, how sustainability and how the environmental movement can be and needs to be 
intersectional um, and how we, you know, and maybe that's part of these questions, you know, thinking about you know, how do we integrate the sustainability lens into our work? How do we also ensure that that, that lens is, is intersectional in nature? So thank you so much for the awesome conversation. I super appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. My first podcast is so exciting. I know. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Beth. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Sustainable Stories podcast. This podcast is hosted by myself, Jenna Inglot, and the lovely Roxanne Wagner from Sage Sustainable Solutions Consulting. For a full list of past episodes, as well as our schedule for upcoming episodes, check us out online at sagesustainable.com. And as always, we welcome your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions. Catch you next time.